There are two fixtures that have been a part of the church since the time of Jesus Christ. That is, the communion that he instituted the night he was uh, betrayed uh, by uh, Judas and before he went to the cross. That is the table, the Lord's table or communion, as well as baptism. We know that even the beginning of his ministry, he was baptized by John the Baptist, and this has always been a part of the Christian tradition. Well, our guest today is uh, uh, Dr. Kevin Emmert. We'll call him Kevin. His book is called The Water and the Blood, How the Sacraments Shape Christian Identity. And I can tell you that this is a subject that oftentimes I think we can overlook how significant and important those two parts of our faith are uh, to our daily practices. So, uh, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us, for being a part of the many voices for that one message. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Why don't you get us started by telling us a little bit about uh, the impetus for this book? Uh, I mean, obviously, communion and baptism have been a part of the church for a long time. It's since the time of Christ it has been integrated into the very fiber of our faith. Uh, what is the issue that uh, this book is addressing? Yeah, that's a great question because I think many people, when they hear sacraments or for some ordinances, they'll think, of course, of baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion and immediately start to think about mode. You know, the best way to practice uh, baptism or communion should somebody be immersed fully, is sprinkling okay? Uh, at what age is somebody allowed to be baptized? Infant versus, you know, simply believer baptism. And then with the Lord's Supper, how often? Um, wine versus grape juice, all sorts of other things. Is Christ present? If so, how is he present? So a lot of people focus on the mode. Um, but in my book, I want, really want people to think about the meaning and specifically what do these rites that, like you said, are as old as the church uh, herself, what do they have to teach us about us as our you know, Christian identity, who we are as people in Christ, uh, identity is a pressing issue today in our modern world. People want to understand themselves. Uh, the world tells us that maybe we need to look in, inside of ourselves or look around us to find out who we are. And I want Christians to know that we have these rights um, that tell us, of course, about our Lord and what he's done for us, but they also have something profound to tell us about who we are as people in him. So that's really why I wanted to uh, you know, explore the, the topic of the sacraments is thinking through identity, uh, pressing issue of our time and what they have to tell us as Christians, people who exist in Christ. Yeah, I do agree with you that the identity gets lost in the mode, but uh, the mode is such an important part of all of this, right? I mean, let's be honest, yeah. Calvin, Luther, and Zwingli couldn't agree on these things, right? They, otherwise, we would have had a united Protestant church. There are so many different denominations. They all have their own take on it. Do they have their own not only mode, but identity in thinking about these things? Yeah, that's right. Um, so, that's something that I wanted to navigate in the book is realizing and, you know, paying special attention to the fact that there are many different understandings of the sacraments, uh, baptism, communion, um, what they mean, uh, what they signify to us. Are they operative in some sense? Is God doing something through these? And of course, there's disagreements um, over hundreds of years even just within the, you know, Protestant circles on uh, what these things are, how um, how they function in the life of the believer, the church, uh, what they mean for us. But there's also a significant amount of consistency in what Christians, specifically Protestants, have believed 
uh, about these two rights, what they mean, what they symbolize, um, and so on. So the, even though there's a fair amount of disagreement on these issues, there's also a fair amount of agreement about what they are and what they do and what they signify and even seal. I think that's actually really important because what often gets lost when we're fighting over where we disagree is the thing that is, is there in the middle, the thing that actually overlaps and unites us together. Uh, and we tend, by just human nature, focus on modes and practices, and they become empty in that regard because we lose their significance as well as the lesson that they're holding. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. It's easy to focus on our differences and uh, lose sight of what binds us all together. And these two rights, these practices, uh, speak to our union, our commonalities as Christians in ways that I think we often lose sight of. They're, they're profound practices. Mm. Well, tell us, what are the identities of these two, uh, these two distinct communion and uh, baptism, these, these practices that the Church have been practicing for millennia? Yeah, so I'll start with baptism because um, we read about that uh, from the get-go in many of the Gospels. You think about the Synoptic Gospels, where they all have an account of Jesus' baptism um, in some form or another, his, his water baptism by John. And even uh, the Gospel of John, uh, John testifies to when he baptized Christ and uh, saw the Spirit come upon him. So all four Gospels speak about Jesus' own baptism, and many of them talk about, of course, John the Baptist and his ministry, and then Jesus' disciples baptizing others, and of course we have Acts. So at the start of the New Testament, we read about baptism as a rite. And uh, even though there are differences between, say, Jesus' baptism by John, and then of course believers being baptized um, from Pentecost on, there's also a fair amount of similarities. And um, in terms of identity, what these mean for us as believers, I mean, uh, I'll go to Paul, what he says in Galatians 3. He says, as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so uh, fundamentally what baptism means and what it means for us Christians who have faith in Christ is that we're united to him. We're actually immersed into Christ. So baptism is basically a transliteration of the Greek term baptisma, which means immersion. And the verb form means to put underwater or to go underwater. So when Paul's using that, saying that you've been baptized into Christ, what he means in essence is that believers, people who have faith in him, who have been justified by him, they're being sanctified, they've been immersed into Christ. They exist in Christ. Their whole existence now is constituted in him. They've been enveloped or plunged into him. So baptism, it signifies, it points to, it represents this great reality of the believer being immersed into Christ, being united to him in a life-giving manner. Um, and even more than that, that people who have been immersed into Christ, baptized into him, Paul says, you have also put on Christ. So we've been clothed with Christ. Uh, we have received his very identity. We are now in him and take on his identity. So baptism, it means a lot of things, washing, reception of the Holy Spirit, justification, we're bound to the church, and many other things. But fundamentally, all that stems from our being united to Christ, being immersed into him. Uh, and then the Lord's Supper or communion, uh, that signifies our, our ongoing or perpetual fellowship or communion with our crucified and risen Lord. And you think about what, um, what Christ was doing when he celebrated 
uh, the Last Supper, the, the Passover with his disciples, the eve before his death, uh, he said, you know, take, this is my body, eat it, you know, take this cup, drink. It is, you know, my shed blood of the new covenant. And he did this right before his death. And so I think what we need to glean from that is that this practice, it shows us that his very death and, of course, resurrection leads to communion with him. That, yes, he died to cleanse us of our sins and to make us righteous in our daily experience and grow in holiness, um, but ultimately to draw us into life-giving communion and fellowship with him, with himself. So um, we are people who commune with Jesus Christ and have his father as our father and have his spirit indwelling us. So we have fellowship or communion with the triune God because of the the work of Christ on the cross and then his his resurrection and ascension. So uh, the two sacraments of the church, they represent our immersion into Christ, our union with him, but then also our ongoing uh, communion with him as well. I want to stick a little bit with baptism for a moment, because at the time of Jesus, this was something that was already a common practice. Uh, They were doing this in the Old Testament, and they were doing it at the time of Jesus. Uh, Do the significance of what they were doing at that time, uh, the Old Testament understanding of it, have any carryover to its use in the New Testament? Absolutely. I mean, uh, baptism, it's um, in the New Testament often used... uh, well, first and foremost, in many ways, it's used to signify that uh, somebody has established or renewed a relationship with God. And so I'll focus on that renewal that when you see in the Old Testament of washings, it's people being cleansed, purified because they are repenting and they want to renew a relationship, a covenant relationship with God. Uh, and we certainly see that in the New Testament as well. But even more than that, there's an establishing of a new relationship. And so many people, you know, in the Jewish, um, you know, if somebody was a proselyte, uh, somebody who's converting to uh, Judaism, you know, from a pagan context, they'd have to undergo washings. And so we see with John the Baptist calling people to repentance, they're, you know, being washed uh, with the waters of baptism. So there's a renewal, but also people would have, you know, establishing a, a new relationship. Uh, but I think what's fundamental about um, the the difference in the New Testament is that it's not just something that somebody does on their own. It's a human act to signify that they're committed to uh, the God of Israel, but that somebody, again, has a new relationship with Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior who came. So, um, it certainly, you know, symbolizes this uh, cleansing from sin and guilt, but even more than that, like I said earlier, it signifies a totally new relationship, a totally new existence in the sun. Um, and I could say more, but I'll, I'll kind of leave it at that. But yes, there's a lot of overlap, but there's still a lot that's new in the New Testament. Well, and how, um, you know, when we talk about baptism in Christ and certainly what happens at Pentecost when the spirit is given to the church and then people respond in faith and repentance, they're baptized. Um that's connected with the, you know, the promised giving of the Spirit, who doesn't just come upon from time to time as people and select few people like prophets, but comes upon everyone, male, female, uh, everyone, young and old, that the Spirit is given without measure. And that's connected to baptism as well. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Well, talk to us a little bit about uh, where that distinction has gotten lost over time. 
Um, it's still a common practice. I know uh, a lot of churches make this a priority and even celebrate it in their uh, their services. So uh, where is the meaning kind of shifted over time? Yeah, I think over time, especially within certain Protestant circles, uh, the meaning of baptism is often equated with personal profession of faith. Uh, and we certainly see that in the New Testament. And, you know, even with washings in the Old Testament, that this is a sign that somebody believes in, you know, Israel's God and that they want to be committed to him and they, you know, are repenting. And then, of course, in the New Testament, uh, specifically at Pentecost, um, people are wondering, you know, how can we be saved? How can we, you know, respond to this gospel message of Christ crucified and risen that, you know, Peter has just spoken? And, and he mentions baptism. So baptism is connected with faith and repentance um, time and time again, specifically in the New Testament. And so I think it's for good reason that many people, uh, especially Protestants and evangelicals, uh, equate baptism with faith. But really, I think it's more than just that, because uh, when you look at uh, passages dealing with baptism, either overtly or even kind of hinting at it, using sort of baptismal ideas and concepts, whether it's washing, you know, when Paul mentions washing in some of his epistles or um, talks about us being, you know, buried with Christ and raised with him, um, or Colossians 3 when he talks about if then you have been raised with Christ, these could possibly be references to physical water baptism, but even more deeply, the spiritual baptism immersion into Christ. So, Baptism throughout the New Testament, when you start to piece together the different references to baptism and the baptismal concepts, it represents far more than simply personal faith, or at least personal profession of faith. Um, it can, it, it uh, is certainly connected to that, but it's not reduced to that. So baptism, again, means immersion into Christ. It means being a part of Christ's body the church. It means receiving the Holy Spirit, that we're baptized with the Spirit, that we're cleansed of our sin, that because we now have um, the, the Spirit living inside of us, we can walk in a holy life. So baptism really symbolizes the whole Christian experience of all the blessings that we receive in Christ because we're united to Him. So it's certainly connected to personal faith, but it cannot be reduced to that. Mm. Now, I don't know if uh, many of our listeners have heard me tell this story before, but uh, I grew up in a credo-baptist church and uh, baptizing as believers, and one of our practices, if you wanted to be baptized, you had to go forward in one of the altar calls in uh, the church service, and I was deathly shy. I know this is really hard for a lot of our (laughs) listeners to believe, but I was deathly shy, and my dad was the pastor, so I remember uh, getting pulled out of children's church, being brought to the thing at the end of the service, and there my mom's like, all right, as soon as the song starts, you're going to go forward. And I got halfway up the aisle, turned around and ran out the back of the sanctuary. Uh, my dad had to come out and grab me and pick me up. Uh, uh, but there's, I think there's a seriousness to taking baptism uh, and understanding the purpose of it as an individual is approaching it. If there's a, we saw maybe a listener who hasn't been baptized or has been thinking about that question, uh, how to approach it and what to do and how to actually take the seriousness of it as opposed to just going through the motions, what kind of advice would you have for them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I find striking about uh, the book of Acts in particular is when it talks about people being baptized There's no mention of a significant delay in time between a person converting and professing faith in Jesus Christ and their baptism. 
that they seem to happen uh, in such proximity that if, you know, again, take Pentecost, for example, you know, these, these people, thousands of people respond positively to the Apostle Peter's message of the gospel, his proclamation. And they said, what, what must we do to be saved? And he says, you know, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and to receive the Holy Spirit. And it talks about how people, you know, thousands were baptized and just, you know, so many were added to the church that day. So on that very day, people were baptized. Um, and somebody could, you know, respond and say, well, you know, these are probably proselytes who had a fair understanding of the God of Israel and the scriptures and whatnot. So they probably didn't need much instruction. Um, and, and I think there's maybe some, some warrant in that, but the New Testament doesn't seem to present this picture where there needs to be a significant gap in time between someone's profession of faith and when they're baptized. Because when you think about what baptism symbolizes, what it signifies is new life in Christ. So if you profess faith in Christ, you have new life in him, you've been given his spirit. So receive that, that right. Um, I would say as, as soon as possible, um, because the, the New Testament doesn't paint this picture of it being, you know, left open to, you know, um, the person's conscience or when they feel like they're ready. Um, you know, Peter urges the people, be baptized, and, and they baptize them right away. So I would encourage people, if you're thinking about it, like, talk to your pastor immediately. Um, see, when can you be baptized? And I think there's some pastoral, you know, concerns about, okay, what's the right timing? But I think it's something that Christians, if they believe in Christ, they should pursue and pursue actively and soon. Um, so I hope that answers your question. But yeah, I would encourage people, this is a blessing, you know, and we can debate, you know, what all goes on in baptism, if anything. Um, but it's significant, it's profound. The apostles believed it was important. And Peter, especially, you know, urged people to do it. And even the um, Ethiopian eunuch, several chapters later in the book of Acts, he says, well, what prevents me from being baptized now? And the apostles seemed to give it some urgency. Let's talk a little bit now about uh, the Lord's table, communion. And uh, this also has rich ties to the Old Testament, obviously. Uh, so what is significant about it, and why is it something that uh, the church has made front and center as a part of their worship gatherings? Yeah. Uh, the the most obvious you know thing for many Christians to think about if they're reading their Bible carefully when they think about the Lord's Supper is that it's analogous it's tied to the Passover, so Jesus institutes this meal on the night where he's celebrating the Passover with his disciples before his death, and so it's clearly linked to that. And you think about well, what is the Passover? It's when God liberated his people from the tyranny of Pharaoh and out of the house of bondage, Egypt, that he passed over them, that even though he was bringing judgment upon um, the wicked people of Egypt during that time, he passed over Israel. He saved them from that judgment. So uh, he he uh, blessed them basically uh, with, with continued life and protection um, through um, through the passing over. And then, of course, um, you know, he institutes this this feast, this rite for them to celebrate year after year to remember what the Lord God had done. Uh, and so Jesus, when he is uh, instituting the Lord's Supper, you know, literally within the context of celebrating the Passover, uh, of course, he's um, he's tying back to what was done and saying that, yes, I am the God. <laughs> I, I am, I'm the Son of God who... Um, 
is the very God who liberated uh, Israel from Egypt and protected them and then led them into the promised land. So Jesus, through his own death and resurrection, is leading his people uh, into a spiritual exodus of a liberation from sin and death through his very death and resurrection, that he is giving them liberty, salvation through his own work on the cross. And so um, he is doing something even greater than what was done in the exodus from Egypt. Uh, but even more than that, you think about uh uh, what he's saying is, you know, take this, eat it. It's my body. It's my blood. Well, what do the very elements do? They, they feed us. They nourish us. They excite our palates. Uh, they fill our stomachs. Um, they help us to, in one sense, grasp the gospel in a multi-sensory manner that Jesus gave his very self on the cross and then came to life again so that we would have life. And he continually nourishes us uh, as we live the Christian life, as we make our, our pilgrim journey throughout this life until you know we die and are brought to him. Um, so there's so much that's rich about uh, the Lord's Supper that he liberates us. He enacts a new covenant with his people who have faith in him. He nourishes us by his own uh, life and his, his sacrificial death and resurrection life. Um, uh, it's also just a reminder that we're completely dependent on God for, yes, our physical existence, but also our spiritual health. Um, when we remember Christ, we're doing more than simply just recalling events in the past. So I think one of the things that's often missed about the Lord's Supper is, you know, Jesus clearly says, do this in remembrance of me. But that word remembrance, it, it means so much more than simply thinking back on something that happened way long ago. So when Christ was celebrating the Passover, he was in some sense identifying with Israel. And that's what the children of Israel were supposed to do when they celebrated the Passover year after year, was to make the Exodus story their own. That that was a past event that had significant ramifications for their present. It gave their own uh, personal and corporal identity um, significance. And so I think when Jesus celebrates that meal and then, of course, institutes the Lord's Supper and says, do this in remembrance of me, he's saying, don't just, I mean, certainly think about what I did for you, but let that past event of my sacrificial death and, of course, my resurrection determine your current life circumstances and who you are. Live in light of that. Let the past shape your present reality. Hmm. We so the Lord's Supper is so rich and multifaceted. Yeah. We recently had uh, someone visiting our church. We were taking communion. And although she had grown up in church her whole life, after the service, I had explained the connection to uh, the Passover. And uh, she came up to me. She said, I had never even known that this had anything to do with the Passover. Mm -hmm. I think there, there's part of it where uh, this has become a, a practice that people have done multiple times without stopping and pausing and thinking about what they're actually participating in. I think that's absolutely true. It's uh, like many things in life, it can become rote. You know, we either don't have it sufficiently explained to us um, when we you know, first receive it, or even if we do, we kind of, you know, lose sight of it time after time because, you know, it just becomes another practice. But it's something that, um, yes, it is in one sense mundane. You think about the way most churches celebrate it. It might be a small piece of bread or a wafer and a tiny sip of juice or wine. And it doesn't fill you, 
you know, it gives you a little taste. And I think there's significance in that. Um, but because it is mundane or small, I think it is easy for people to lose sight of how significant it really is. Mm -hmm. I think as well with the context of this is, is the way in which it preaches the gospel. This is something I strive to do in every aspect of our ministry, and I see it throughout the New Testament, right? Uh, this is something to do. We proclaim Christ's death until he comes again. When we're participating in communion, we are preaching the gospel, and that is so core to the Christian life, something that uh, can be lost in just seeing it as a rote practice. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It is a proclamation of Christ, what he has done, uh, who he is, and that he will return. Uh, and I, also, I think that we preach to ourselves who we are. And this is something I try to tackle you know, in my book, is that these, first and foremost, they tell us about who Christ is and what he has done for us, but also they tell us about who we are. So with uh, communion or the Lord's Supper, it tells us, yes, we are dependent upon the Lord for our salvation and even all our needs in life. But it also preaches to us that we live in communion with him, that we draw all our strength from him like a branch does from the vine, and that we can only bear fruit by living in vital communion with Jesus Christ, the head of the body, the church. So we preach to ourselves that we need Christ day in and day out, that we actually live in communion with him. And we preach to one another as we take this meal that we're one body, that we're united in him, that we need one another. Now, I, I grew up in a culture where a lot of these sort of church practices were being uh, kind of rewritten without a, an instruction manual, right? The the sort of emergent church happened when I was in college, and uh, uh, all of the, the, the sort of baby was being thrown out with the bathwater, and they were reinventing these uh, practices of, of baptism and even communion. And uh, what is the this concern here about how we're approaching it now versus what it was being meant to present to us as a community of believers? Mm, yeah, I think when people hear the word tradition, they often, uh, especially today, whether Christian or not, they can get a little uneasy. Um, specifically within certain Christian circles, if they hear tradition, they think, oh, it's simply man-made, that these are human practices that have been adhered to. But literally, the word tradition means that which has been handed over. And so these are rites, practices, events that, of course, they were instituted by Christ himself. You know, he commanded us to be baptized, to repent, uh, to believe the gospel. Uh, and of course, he, you know, commanded that we eat his meal in remembrance of him. Uh, but they have also been handed down to us generation after generation by the church. And I think because of that, we have to understand that they're significant. That if the church in obeying her Lord has said these are important, then we need to hold on to them. But also we need to think through, well, what do they mean and how should they be practiced? And of course, again, there are differences of opinions over how they should be practiced and who all could participate in them. Um, but they're significant. And if we want to think about revisions, I'm not saying that we should necessarily, but if people want to think about revisions, they need to do so with uh, with trepidation and with a lot of caution. Yeah, I think it's the principle of uh, cutting off the ends of the ham, right? 
Uh, you know, there's a tradition that's been passed down from generation to generation. They always cut off the ends of the ham before throwing it in the oven until the, the daughter said, why do we do this to the mother? And the mother said, I don't know, my grandmother always did it. And then the grandmother says, I did it because the oven was too small, right? Uh, knowing why we do things actually is pretty important, whether we do it or don't do it. Uh, but I think in this context, I've always been very conscientious of, of not throwing out the baby with the bath water because uh, a lot of times we lose significance and, and walking without a manual, walking without any instruction in these areas can lead us down some pretty um, treacherous paths. Yeah, that's right. And I think we that's one reason why we need to adhere to what the historic church has practiced and even taught about these two things. Uh, one of the things that strikes me is in the early church, baptism, uh, baptismal formulas um, included a profession of the creed. So what has now come to be known as the Apostles' Creed and then development into, say, Nicene Creed, uh, this declaration of who our triune God is and what he has done for us, that declaration, um, the rule of faith, as it was often called in early forms, was passed down through baptismal liturgies that, you know, Christians were converting to Christ. People were, sinners were converting to Christ and they're identifying with him being brought into the life of the church. And as they're baptized, they're professing their faith in the triune God. And when people are professing their faith in the triune God, they would often see people being baptized, being brought in to the fold of the Christian community. And this was just a common practice where, uh, you again, you can't separate faith in our triune God from baptism and, and vice versa. These things go hand in hand that we, uh, that we believe in the triune God and therefore immersed into Christ. And what does it mean to be immersed in Christ? Well, we're connected to the triune God and um, we baptism must be connected to faith. So um, there are many differences of opinions over, you know, of course, how these things should be done. And there's certainly many manuals. Uh, you think of historic Protestant, you know, um, confessions of faith and um, documents on how these things should be practiced. Um, and I think it, we would be wise today to pay attention to those because there's a lot of wisdom in the past that we can mine. And it's also important to, to for each generation to go through the effort of understanding the the elements that have been passed down to us. Because I, I grew up in a church. My dad was a pastor. Uh, I remember when I was in my kind of rebellious, kind of rambunctious years, asking him, you know, why do we have to use kosher crackers? Uh, when we take communion, like we're not Jewish, uh, why do why do they have to be kosher? Uh, so uh, that was, you know, those questions. My dad didn't know the answer to it. That was what was so frustrating to me about it because it was a, it's a rule in our practices, but it was without meaning behind it. It's important for us to understand the meaning behind what we're doing. That's right. Yeah, there's so much meaning in these two things, and you know, I've touched on some of them here, and we could, you know, go into you know, more of what they mean, but these are not just bare activities that we do. Um, you know, take baptism, for example, you know, it's not simply a mark of personal profession. Yes, it, it symbolizes that we have faith in Christ, um, but it also symbolizes our washing, our renewal, our connection to the church, our immersion into Christ, our union with him, um, and, and more. And so, in order to understand the rite itself of water baptism, we need to understand, you know, the meaning behind it. And as we do, I think our hearts are gladdened. You know, we gain greater appreciation for the rite itself, but also I think we're, we're led into worship and more joyful worship and, you know, gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. And again, and it tells us about who we are in Him, that 
God has blessed us so richly to, yes, grant us salvation in his son, that we exist in him now and that we're adopted children of the father. There's no greater blessing than to be a part of God's you know, divine family. Um, and so when we understand the meaning behind these things, yes, we gain a greater appreciation for the, the practice itself, but ultimately it should lead us into greater experience of God's goodness and therefore, you know, richer, more joyful, grateful worship of our God who has saved us. This is ultimately a deep dive in something that we often just gloss over the surface, even in our practices in our churches. And I understand I'm a pastor myself. There's a limited amount of time in which you can communicate these things to your congregation and make sure that they're all on the same page. They all understand what they're doing. And you have to realize you can only take them so deep before they start to kind of panic and get get a little uneasy. So what sort of advice or uh, encouragement do you have for our listeners about uh, understanding the complexities of these things that they they might actually be a little bit intimidated by? Yeah, that's, I just, wow, that's a really great thing to consider. Um, the scriptures are so rich. Uh, I think most people who are engaged in the Bible day in and day out, or even, you know, on a somewhat irregular basis know that, um, if they're committed to reading scripture, they understand that there's just uh, never-ending riches that they could mine. Uh, and baptism and communion, these rites that we have, they're scriptural, and they symbolize uh, and point to various aspects of our salvation in Christ. And so I think just like many other topics in scripture, we could, you know, gain the fundamentals, you know, what do they mean in almost their barest form? And that would uh, give us a greater appreciation of what Christ has done for us and who we are in him. But also it should help us understand that there's more and more and more that we can learn. And as we continue to learn more and more and more about these things, that hopefully our enjoyment of them and ultimately our enjoyment of God becomes richer and deeper as well. So I think a lot of uh, specifically evangelicals today, when they think about the sacraments, they might um be a little nervous because they might think about, say, Roman Catholicism, which might be a bit ritualistic and that they see these things as, oh, are they magical? Um, and so some people are scared of the sacraments in that way. But really, these are gifts. They're divine gifts. And that's what I want people to know is, yeah, we might be scared by conversations about them, especially if people are debating what they mean or how they should be practiced. But first and foremost, I would want to tell people these are good gifts that are savior has instituted and given to us given to his church and each individual who was part of the church so receive them see them as something that you have that you experience even if you're you're only baptized once and you commune with the lord and his lord's supper many times but these are gifts and you can think about the promises extended to you in these rites day in and day out they are gifts and they signify so many gifts that you have in Christ. I think it's hard for a lot of New Testament believers to understand the the significance of of these two uh, practices, the of communion and uh, of baptism, uh, much more so than those in the Old Testament who had a whole robust uh, practices that were all designed to help them understand their need for a Savior, their need for an atoning sacrifice. All of these things were a part of their their daily practices in their worship. Uh, we have a few, and uh, I think it's hard for us to make that connection, but God has always been using these for the purpose of 
of showing us our need for Christ. And you write about this as well, our need for conformity to Christ. Yeah, that's right. That's It's interesting to notice, like you said, that there are so many practices in the Old Testament in terms of, you know, the different kinds of sacrifices and washings and, you know, the different festivals and whatnot. And in the New Testament, we've got baptism, communion, you know, meet on the Lord's Day, um, you know, be generous and, you know, pro- proclaim the gospel, teach one another with psalms and spiritual songs, etc. Um, so our worship is a little bit more simplified. But it all still points to who God is. And I think one of the things that's so profound about baptism and communion is that, yes, baptism, it's sort of the fulfillment of all the washing and, you know, sort of purification ceremonies in uh, the Old Testament. Well, of course, Christ is the one who filled them all, fulfilled them all. But then he says, well, be baptized, be immersed into me, the one who has fulfilled all these on your behalf. And with the Lord's Supper, that sort of summarizes and shows, you know, the completion of all these sacrificial, you know, the offerings and whatnot in the Old Testament. That of course, it points to Christ. He is the one in his death and resurrection who has fulfilled all the, you know, the sacrifices and whatnot. And we get to enjoy the benefits of that as we commune with him. And we remember what he has done. We feast on him when we, um, when we um, partake of the Lord's Supper. And like you said, we are to conform to Christ that in the Old Testament, People were given these washings and different ceremonial, you know, sort of practices to, yes, of course, renew their relationship with their covenant God and to be holy as he is holy. And in the New Testament, Christ is the one who has fulfilled all that for us. And our sort of privilege and duty is to become like him, to become like Christ the Son. And baptism and communion point to that reality that we've been given new life in him. We've been immersed into him and we should become more and more like him. And as we commune with him, we fellowship with him day in and day out through prayer, scripture reading, worship, communion with the body, the church. And of course, you know, participating in the Lord's Supper, we are given strength to become more and more like him. He nourishes us. So the goal of the gospel, I think, is to of course, fellowship with God, but also become more and more like God. And baptism and communion, they they teach us that in different ways. Now, you know, one final question in all of this. Uh, baptism is something we do once. Communion is something we do on a regular basis. Uh, if, if baptism is meant to be this idea of, of, of being in Christ and this washing, all of these other things, why isn't something we practice more often? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, in this... The simplest answer I can give is that baptism represents, it symbolizes or signifies our union with Christ, which is definitive. It happens once. You're united to Christ. You don't become more united to Christ. You think about how a head and a body are joined. They're joined. You think about a man and a woman joined in marriage. They're joined. Once they're joined, they're joined. Um, You think about the image of a vine and a branch. They're joined together. Um, and so our baptism, it signifies that union, uh, which I believe the New Testament says is unending, that once we're engrafted into Christ, we're not removed from him. Now, there are warning passages in the New Testament that caution believers from you know, entering into grievous sin so they wouldn't be cut off. But I even think that many of those warning passages are um, they're, they're sort of pedagogical in the sense of you will remain but make sure you keep on doing the things to remain. So it's a mystery there that I think is often hard to understand, 
But um, the way that I read the New Testament with my particular theological lens um, is that our union with Christ, once uh, once it's said and done, it's said and done, that it's not unending, that we don't become ununited from Christ. So baptism signifies that once and for all union with Christ. And then communion, of course, symbolizes our ongoing or perpetual fellowship with Christ. And then, of course, you can always have your feet washed, right? That's uh, but that's the that's a sequel to this book, right? You're going to talk about that, one. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I really appreciated your time with us. I know these are very difficult and tough subjects, although they're so common within our culture. It's, I think it's really important for us to revisit them with a fresh new perspective and to go a little bit deeper. With that being said, could I, could I ask you to pray and uh, uh, pray over our, our listeners who would benefit from understanding the significance of of communion? and the Lord's table as they see it practiced in their local church. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you um, not only for our time together here uh, to talk about the the goodness that you extend to us in Christ, um, in his sacrificial death, and his coming to life again, and ascending into glory in the heavenly places. Um, We thank you for his giving us... uh, just so many gifts. We think about the gifts of justification, regeneration by your spirit, that we have a new family, the church. Um, And we thank you that the gifts of baptism and communion represent many of the good things uh, that we have received in your son, Jesus Christ. So um, we're just grateful that you are a good father who has, uh, out of your own pleasure and delight, uh, given us so many good things, so many blessings. And so I just pray that uh, we all, Lord, um, Adam and I here, and then all the listeners would just be able to receive the good gifts that you have given us, that we would receive them with gratitude, and that we would desire to learn more and more about the things you have given us, and then ultimately who you are, and that we understand your um, your fatherly heart more and more as we consider our baptism, Lord, our immersion into Christ, our cleansing from sin, and everything else that it represents. And as we... Um, with the gathered body, we either week in and week out or monthly or whenever, as we feast on the Lord's Supper, that we would um, be filled with gratitude for what your son has done for us and that he continually nourishes us and he gives himself to us day in and day out. And so we thank you. We pray that you would just encourage us and fill our hearts with gladness. Uh, so we pray this in his name, by your spirit. Amen. Amen. We've been talking with Kevin Emmert. His book is called The Water and the Blood, How the Sacraments Shape Christian Identity. This is a subject I think that we need to take seriously. It's not something that we can just uh, gloss over, especially if we're considering how we pass on our faith to the next generation. This is something each generation needs to take the responsibility of understanding its significance and also seeing how that understanding can lead us closer into our walk with Christ. It is a real joy to have him with us today. So, Kevin, thank you once again for being a part of the many voices for that one message. Thank you for having me. It's been great.